Know then that it is the year 2020. The known universe is ruled by the quarantine, which forces us to look for content to entertain ourselves. In this time, the most precious content in the universe is the Pick Podcast. The Pick extends life. The Pick extends consciousness. The Pick is vital to space travel um this is the pick with sean lemmy john otney colin westman matt karstens you know you know what my intro is going to be sean it was going to be he who he who controls the pick controls the universe (laughs) (laughs) it's true but this is a group pick so it doesn't really work yeah this is I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't have even call it the pick. Maybe we should just call it something else that we're putting out. But that's the show that we do. So we're we're putting it under that under that title, and we're talking about the 1984 film Dune, directed by David Lynch, uh, because we all read the book. Now, why would we read a dumb book? That's a good question. I think for me, I've known for uh, a long time that it's it's the 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 Dune novel is celebrated as one of the great uh, works of science fiction of all time. Uh, hugely influential, just a big deal. Um, but I, I don't know if I ever would have gotten around to it if it wasn't for the fact that there's a new movie adaptation of Dune coming out, uh, hopefully later this year. I think that's probably the case for everyone else, right? Kind of interested in it, but really wanted to read it before the movie. It was for me, though. I feel like, Nancy, you just knew it was time to read Dune. <laughs> well, I was reading a nonfiction book about the history of Star Wars, and it was there was like a whole chapter on Dune, and I was like, I should read this. So I stopped reading that book and started reading Dune. And then, like, the next day, we talked about reading Dune. And I'm glad we did, because I might... I might have uh, I might have stopped. I'm glad we did. <laughs> I think we're doing our most anticipated movies podcast, and we're like, should we all read Dune? Should we read Dune? <laughs> should we do it as a, a book club? Should we do it as a podcast? But we just did it as a in real life book club these past few months. And I yeah, I was just like, yeah, sure, why not? I, I was not thinking about reading Dune. Unlike everyone else, I guess Sean had attempted to read it a few years ago. That's true. I was in a digital book club before, although it wasn't like an interactive one, really, um, where the, someone had curated sections of the book to read. And I started on that, and then I missed a week, and I just immediately gave up because I'm weak like that. Um, Instead, this time you just read the whole book in like three days. Well, yeah, this time when we missed a week, I was like, fuck this. I'm not going to slack off like last time. <laughs> and I got out of control. I I get it because I think the beginning of the book is probably the weakest part of the book because you're thrust in 
they're throwing a lot of terminology and vocabulary at you and you gotta you know you need some time to get settled into the world of dune but i feel like once you're past that point once you're past 20 something pages it's really not that complicated of a book and it's just a real great uh messiah's journey slash battle of political aspiration and power and you know, I th- I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones a lot because that's what it reminds me a lot of. Um, so I don't think it's as weird as uh, as most people think, though, you know, its history uh, in terms of movie adaptations hasn't helped its reputation. Um, so I'm hoping that new movie uh, grounds it. But yeah, I'm glad we read it. I really liked the book a lot, though I'm not like in a hurry to read the other ones but i do think yeah people should check out the book if i had one takeaway people should yeah the first one is actually fun it sounds like the sequels are not um and i'm definitely having read part of the second sequel i'm the second book the the first sequel Um, i mean i'm so into it that's just because you're you're so committed to the canon you're just loving all the details. <laughs> no, you know, I think it's because, not to go too far in this direction, but I, I just like, it's a lot of s- people sitting around talking shit, like conspiracies. and <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm just into, it's different. It's like, you know, it's not a grand adventure. It's more just like conniving and, you know, political groups. And I, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm digging it. They did a bad, bad thing. And Aaliyah is like super awesome Jedi Master. <laughs> and she's really awesome in the movie we watched. Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you guys want well, me to get to, the to give you a, a a brief history of Dune at the movies? Definitely. That's I think more interesting than the movie itself. <laughs> so the I'll try I'll try not to go too long. So the rights to a Dune film were first purchased in 1971 by Arthur P. Jacobs, who produced the Planet of the Apes movies, the first three. And he wanted... 71? 71 is is when someone first was like, hey, let's do this. Because it took some time for uh, Dune to become a hit, I think, if I recall how it worked. Like, it wasn't an instant hit. It was successful, but um, over time it got more successful. I'm trying to remember when it came out because it couldn't have been. The, it was definitely the 60s. It was sixty-five. It, it was 65. sixty-five. Yeah, but seventy-one was someone when someone was first like, "Hey, let's do it as a movie," and uh, David Lean was attached to direct that. So, you know, oh. you're going to do a sweeping epic. You get the sweeping epic guy. Yeah, he's already made a desert guy movie though. And that sounds like a pretty good pairing though. Like the guy who produced Planet of the Apes and David Lean. Like, is Charlton Heston going to be in this? Like, as Duke Leto? How good would that be? I don't know. Unfortunately, we'll never get to know because uh, Arthur P. Jacobs died from a heart attack a couple years later, and then I guess they just kind of let the rights drop. I guess they're like no one else saw any potential in it. Uh, and then it was scooped up by a French uh, group um, uh, led by a guy named Jean-Paul Gabon. And then also based out of France at the time was, of course, Chilean-French filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky, who made very surreal movies in this time period, like El Topo and The Holy Mountain. And um, 
he found out about a dune when a friend like described it to him he hadn't read it <laughs> and he's like oh that sounds awesome we're doing this i don't know if he ever did read the book but he must have because at some point he did write a script for a potential 14 hour dune movie uh, this is all chronicled, of course, in the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, which I rewatched uh, uh, after watching David Lynch's Dune. And uh, so he he paired up with uh, the, those the guys that had that had bought the rights to Dune in France, and they started pre production, and they spent two years on it and spent two million dollars just on the pre production. They never even obviously they never made the movie. Uh, but they they storyboarded the whole thing. Mobius drew storyboards for for everything. They got Chris Foss to do conceptual artwork for all the spaceships and architecture. Uh, and they even started meeting with potential actors. David Carradine was going to be Duke Leto. Mick Jagger was going to be Fade because you have to have a rock star play Fade. <laughs> uh, Orson Welles was going to be uh, Baron Harkonnen or Harkonnen under the condition that. Every day, he gets food from his favorite restaurant on set. And probably the weirdest uh, choice was Salvador Dali was going to be the emperor of the universe, shot him. But uh, he was going to be paid $100,000 a minute of screen time, and he was only going to be in the movie for five minutes. And in scenes where they weren't going to use him, they were going to build a Salvador Dali robot uh, to do those scenes. (laughs) Uh, so I think just you know hearing that you can see that okay they had some ideas that are straying a little bit from the book. Um, it was super insane, but everybody thinks like it would have been super cool. But I have my doubts. Um, like the studios had doubts, and uh, they couldn't get any more financial backing or support from any studio, and then they shelved it after two years. Uh, and then the rights were purchased again in 76 by Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis, um, who started his career uh, producing acclaimed Italian dramas. He actually has an Oscar for producing La Strada. But then in the 70s and 80s, he shifted towards making blockbusters like King Kong and Conan and uh, Halloween, the Halloween movies. Uh, he actually hired Frank Herbert to write a script in the late 70s which Frank Herbert did. It was 175 pages long. And Dino De Laurentiis says, this sucks. Uh, And then he he then hired Ridley Scott to direct and um, Rudy Wurlitzer to write. He wrote Tulane Blacktop and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Uh, Ridley said he was going to split the movie into two parts. Um, But this whole process of rewriting was taking so long, he went off to do Blade Runner. And then after that, he was just totally exhausted. And then his older brother died, and he was just burnt out, and he just dropped out. Uh, just wasn't a good time for him. So then Dino De Laurentiis saw the Elephant Man and was like, hey, how about this guy? <laughs> and David Lynch signed on, even though he had not read the book and did not like science fiction. Uh, regardless, he spent six months working on a script with some other guys, and eventually he's like, fuck these guys, I'll write it my, by myself, and he did five more drafts. Uh, he ended up getting solo writing credit, and yeah, and they went forward, they shot the film in Mexico, a uh, budget of $42 million, and it grossed $30 million. <laughs> What What was, uh, what's that budget like for back then? I'm assuming it's a lot. Uh, it's pretty decent. That's like a decent blockbuster budget. 
Um, yeah, I don't know exactly for inflation, but it's not a cheap movie by any means. It doesn't look like a cheap movie, though some yeah. of the some of the reviewers um, thought it looked kind of cheap. But I don't know. I wasn't around in 1984. It looks fine to me. That's actually like, one so of the re- things I like about Return, it. Return of the Jedi came out in 1983, yeah. and yeah. it cost $32.5 million. Yes, of course, also... David Lynch was attached to that at some point. <laughs> you just had to, everyone saw the Elephant Man is like clearly this guy needs to do something with spaceships. <laughs> it's just funny because like some of the movie looks really good, and but the parts that look bad, I feel like they're choices, like the shields. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't have to look like that. But I wonder if people in 1984 thought that looked bad though. I mean, it's CGI, but you know, it's, it, it's not that it. It just looks stupid. <laughs> it's not like it looks fine if that's what they're going for, but it just looks really dumb. I wonder if it's one of those things where it's like they put all this money into trying it, and they're like, "Well, fuck, this is what we have. We spent money on it. I guess this is what's in the movie." Yeah, but it's like at this point, Tron is already a couple of years old. Like Tron had better computer effects than those shields. I think people would would be like, "This is this is bad." Maybe. Yeah, it is kind of inconsistent Inconsistent because I think it tries so many things. But maybe it shouldn't have tried so much. But it's taken it's a lot. Taken the off Navigator is like the coolest looking thing ever. Yeah, let's let's get to that because that's pretty early in the movie, weirdly enough. Uh, so what I, what I do like about this movie, and I'm sure some people don't like this, is how we open with the floating head of Princess Arulan in space. It's Virginia Madsen, and she gives uh, that big monologue, very much like a Star Wars crawl. Sean was referencing that at the beginning of the podcast, which basically explains yeah. everything for for about Dune. And I don't know, like for me, I thought this was kind of fun. Yeah, it's cheesy, but like I knew all this stuff, so I wonder if I if I was someone who had no knowledge of Dune, how I would feel about this opening. Uh, maybe I wouldn't like it. But there's one thing in it that I, once I saw that, I was like, okay, wait, I might be in for a bad time because she's giving this huge, long spiel. And then in the middle of it, she says, oh, yes, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Can you imagine if there's a Star Wars call? It's like dot, dot, dot. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. This also happens. <laughs> it almost seems like there's so much information that even the character in the movie is like, oh, shit, I forgot this thing. There's just so much going on. <laughs> like, we don't need all of this right off the bat. We, we I don't know. It's just. It's a it's a bad omen, I think, when you have all yeah. that. Uh, I I do also like it as um, as a reference to the book because the book does have every chapter begin with a passage from uh, Erlon's history of Muad'Dib, uh, who is Paul Atreides, who we'll meet in a little bit. But yeah, I think I read that these that these inserts with Virginia Madsen were all done after. David Lynch made his original cut, and the movie was way too goddamn long, and they needed to chop it down. Um, so that maybe explains why it doesn't fit as well, and why it's trying to cram so much information in. Um, it's because people just weren't trying. It's a, it's a pickup. So it's just like how the Blade Runner cut had that <laughs> narration <laughs> added on because people didn't think. <laughs> That audiences would understand what's going on. Yeah, but in this case, they were right. 
Yeah. <laughs> Blade Runner is pretty easy to get, but this is this is a lot. This, this is the most imagining I've ever had to do watching a movie because I had to both put myself in the context of like 84 and try to appreciate the effects and storytelling from that point of view. But also have to imagine not having read the book and not knowing what's going on. And that second one is actually a lot easier than I would have thought because the, this movie is such a sloppy mess that it's very easy to to find it boring and disorienting, uh, even if you know all the goofy words they're throwing in and the significance of the characters that appear and die and disappear um, so quickly. It feels so simultaneously like long and rushed it's really it's really weird i do want to highlight things i like about it as we go i really like the opening credits to this movie that are just shots of the dunes it's the most we're ever going to see of the desert in this whole movie (laughs) the opening credits and that theme song what do you guys think of that theme song it's pretty cool i like it a lot yeah now i was so confused now I saw there's like one uh, one credit that's like such and such theme by Brian Eno and Toto, but then the rest of the music's by Toto. Did Brian Eno just work on that theme, or was it another track? Does anyone know who composed that main theme? Because they use it a lot. Were you guys thinking it was Toto? I, I just assume it's Brian Eno, and then Toto did like all the other like arranging and stuff of the score. There. Okay, because there is that part later, and we're definitely going to talk about this because it's the class of the movie, where we hear the theme and they put an, a lead guitar over it. This <laughs> is really <laughs> weird how the score starts out like all orchestral and like, I don't know, it just feels like your typical like epic <laughs> symphonic score. And then as you get deeper into the movie... Like the movie kind of gets sillier, and the score also gets sillier <laughs> with like more '80s rock guitars on the soundtrack. But I love, I love that theme. It's really good. Yeah. So we get all all that out of the way, and then I was like, oh well, clearly we're going to go to to Paul on Caladan, like in the book. But we open My. with the Emperor, Jose, who's played by Jose Fair, who has a lot of screen time. Discussing his plans with a guild navigator. Now I'm I I, I apologize because I'm not going to remember everything from the book, but like, I mean, definitely this scene didn't happen. But also like, and maybe this is nitpicking. Was the guild the guild wasn't in on this scheme initially, were they? This is just for fans of the book. Yeah, I don't remember because. <laughs> The way that I remember it, and there is a lot to remember even reading the book, is that the Baron and the Emperor came up with this plan. Emperor is threatened by um, Duke Leto. He thinks he's going to get too powerful, so they're going to send him to Arrakis and then kind of stealthily take him out in secret, not to um, uh, freak out the other houses. But in this, like, I don't know, he's telling it right to the guild. And it's not just a guild member, it's a guild navigator, which I'm sure David Lynch was just so excited to include in this movie. It's barely in the book. There's they talk about the guild navigators, but they're not they don't like speak or anything. Like this is they're, literally Yeah, go ahead. Nobody gets to see them. It's forbidden. Well, I I felt like 
the more I, I feel like the more I read the second book, the more like I feel a lot of the details are fleshed out. Like, like they got the details from the second book and are putting them in the first book. In you the see, movie. I don't feel like David Lynch read the second book. Yeah, that's, maybe he but, did. I just don't feel like he did. But they get into that. like way more detail about the navigators in the second book. I feel like, and like, and like the fish tanks that they're in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I guess he must have. He must have known something then, because somebody yeah, the, knew something. Is the emperor in his palace, and this big giant vape chamber comes out, and it's got this floating fetus thing in it. I'm like, yeah, that's a David Lynch creation for sure. <laughs> Looks like the weird little fetus from a uh, head. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to mention about the miniseries is it also the Emperor and Irulan also play a huge role in that. Yeah. So like I wonder if it's just like a maybe it's just an obvious storytelling thing for these people that made these things that like we need to have them with some exposition, you know, to frame these plans for the audience, I guess. I think it, yeah. I think it's a good change. It gives you a concrete villain uh, that, like, the, the the book has that in Baron Harkonnen, but he gets a very unsatisfying uh, end from a like dramatic standpoint. Uh, I think, I mean, if he was the main villain of the movie and they kill him, like they do in the book and in this movie. It, you would be really disappointed because Paul has basically nothing to do with that. Um, and so making the Emperor sort of the real main bad guy of the story absolutely makes sense to me. I think it's a great change. But I don't... See, I would prefer if we had more emphasis on, on Hark, Harkonnen because he's a master manipulator. He's an evil genius. Not, I always felt not like... in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I always felt like that. This is part of his plan to kind of influence people, including the emperor. But they don't have any interest in making him an evil genius, and I feel like that was a mistake. I don't care about the emperor. He's Jesus afraid. That's his default. I'm afraid. Save me, giant fetus. What do we do? <laughs> so he's basically just telling the giant fetus. I'm just gonna call it that. Um, about his concerns, and the and the fetus is like, yeah, and kill this Paul guy. He's don't don't trust. Just kill this guy. Just do it. Yeah, was that was that in the book that the, the guild wanted Paul dead? I don't think so. Because that's also it's definitely in Dune Messiah a lot. Yeah, I think he. I think that changed because don't. I feel like at the end of uh, of this book, there are guild navigators. Who are just like people with contacts on? Uh, I think they're guild then, members, not navigators. They're, yeah. Oh, they're not. They're, just, they're not they're navigators. Just regular okay. guild members. I was gonna say it's our first retcon, but maybe not. Maybe that's just they're different, different guild folk. But like they're just showing up in the book because they're like Paul's basically starting a revolution on a planet. It has nothing to do with like they're not in cahoots with the emperor's plan necessarily, right? Well, yeah, Dune Messiah's already messing with me because I know why the guild would hate him so much because of Dune Messiah. But I guess, yeah, in, in this context, it's just because they depend on the spice, which only exists on Arrakis. And so they have a vested interest in making sure Arrakis is stable, which is why they're doing things like paying off 
the Fremen or getting getting paid off by the Fremen. Um, yeah. Huh. But in the movie, the guild's like, kill this Paul guy. I got a feeling. <laughs> yeah. Which which get which makes sense in Dune Messiah because he's like, well, because I he's someone I can't see his future. I guess they're trying to go the route of these weird fetuses have like this ultra perception and they can kind of see the future, so they see something bad. Mm-hmm. Stop it before it happens. Yeah, and if you and if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen this movie or <laughs> read this book, <laughs> we, this is what it's like. We haven't given you haven't done any hand holding. Hey, the book didn't do that either. The book and the movie don't do that. It has a glossary, but it's not very helpful. All right, let's try to explain. No one's going to make it this far if they haven't read the book. Okay, Dune is about a planet with spice on it. Everybody wants this. this. You don't need to okay. do it. But you Every- can only explain it in four sentences. Everybody wants the spice. This one guy lives there and might be God. No, that's enough. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sure. Let's get to Paul uh, on Cal on Caladan. Well, no, I think I think you're getting to an interesting point, which is uh, as much as it's the the story is associated with trippy directors like David Lynch and uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, the this is also could be a simple story about um, uh, betrayal and a quest for revenge and power and and all the sweet action that it takes to do that um you like you don't have to make this story focused on the mind-bending aspects of it but that has expressly been the choice of every creative that's been associated with the project and i guess the question that i find myself asking is uh assuming that uh denis villeneuve the director of the 2020 version um, doesn't emphasize that. Does that cut out a, a, a part of what makes this story so appealing? Uh, or or can it survive without explaining everything that's going on all the time? I mean, that's a hard question to answer because all we're going off of is kind of the past films Denis Villeneuve has made and the set photos we have. We don't have any idea what his approach is going to be at all. Um, but if he does try to streamline it and make it more grounded and take out some of the nuance, like I'm fine with that. Cause I'll always have the book. I don't mind a more simplified version because I've seen what the non-simplified version of Dune is in a movie and I don't need it. <laughs> so I'm okay with it. Oh, Nancy, I'm interested in your take on this. Cause I know you're, you're particularly interested in, um, you know, people getting out of their heads and experiencing more than their typical consciousness. Uh, um, That's like your jam. Sure. Uh, What's the question again? (laughs) (laughs) Is, is that, is that like the soul of Dune? Does it, does it need to be about the, the mind bending spice or can it be a story about Paul Atreides? No. Trying to get revenge. Definitely not. I, I mean, I think that's maybe why I like, the second book so much because it's more just a story about people um i i don't even feel like that's i mean it's a big part of the book but like most of the book's a big adventure like it's not you know what i mean it's not that much about 
I think it. I think it totally could be sweet action Star Wars with a couple trippy scenes. Oof, that's the dream. The dream to make uh, Star Wars for adults. This movie didn't even go into the fact that the book has uh, laser guns that you shoot at force fields that cause huge explosions. There's no time. <laughs> Alright, let's plus, go yeah. Plus that would be confusing because of their choice To make voice guns um, Oh my god so oh my god. I'm not sure people be able to differentiate <laughs> those from laser guns Oh my god Alright Paul, we meet Paul on Caladan uh, He's learning about Arrakis on his computer I actually like this, this feels like something This feels like something from the book He's just learning And his three uh, mentors come in we got Thuffer, UA, and Gurney. Uh, let's talk about each one. We can talk about some of them pretty briefly. Um, let's talk about how they decided to go with uh, the look of Mentats in this movie. Mentats being like kind of uh, advisors that have a uh, powers of perception or like human computers. Uh, what do we think about Thuffer in this movie? Thuffer Hawat. He's played by Freddie Jones. Yeah, yeah so they, there's a visual shorthand in this movie when it comes to uh, hair and makeup and costumes. Uh, they want it. They want it, you know. If you see a woman with a shaved head in a black robe, she's Bene Gesserit. Uh, if you see someone with a reverse mohawk, where the middle, the vertical <laughs> stripe of their hair is shaved off, they're a Harkonnen. Uh, and and if you see someone with fucking bananas eyebrows and <laughs> vegeta hair and uh visible herpes like a rash around their mouth they're a mentat and did it look like herpes it just looked like really red around their lips like they'd eaten too much spaghetti <laughs> or too much spice spice is dribbling onto their chin yeah they couldn't handle the spice I, it's such a bizarre choice because these are um, between the the Mentet and the Bene Gesserit are kind of like the, the two like smartest groups of people, and the Bene Gesserit are exclusively women, and the Mentats seem to be exclusively men, although I don't think that's necessarily the rule. Um, and so it's 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 funny that this character Fufer, who is like the smart guy on their on Team Atreides, like everyone's trusted advisor, he's been working with the family for generations. It looks like the most like a cartoon character of everyone in the entire movie. And can't take him seriously at all. Especially, like, the eyebrows are are nuts. Uh, but it's his dirty mouth that I can't stop looking at. And it just revolts me to see him. Yeah. As for the performance and the character, like, yeah, I, I was fine with it. This is how I imagined Thuffer Hawat. Though, like so many characters, he's just not really a thing. He just kind of pops up here and there. Uh, so, yeah. Wasted yeah. opportunity. We also have UA, who um, he doesn't really do anything. Steam Stockwell. He's got the diamond on his forehead, which he had in the book. So they got the designs fine. I like Dean <laughs> Stockwell. Um, don't really learn much about him or why he <laughs> goes on to betray them, but he does. Oh, I forgot. Spoilers, everybody. This is spoilers for dude. Uh, so yeah, disappointing. But let's talk about Gurney Halleck, guys, because it's Patrick Stewart. Peace, do. How do we feel about Patrick Stewart in Dude? Hamming it up. Hamming it up. You know what I was thinking while I was watching this? Patrick Stewart should have been Duke Leto. 
I don't I don't think he's the right type for Gurney because Gurney is kind of grizzled. He's like an old like fighting buddy basically. Uh, well, Patrick Stewart is way too regal. He's way too elegant to be Gurney Halleck. Um, I guess he's a good authority figure though because they go right into a shield fight. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think the the interesting thing about Gurney Halleck is that he's both like he's a tough guy, but he's also he's the the poet. He's the he's the warrior poet of the of the group. He likes to sing songs and recite poetry, and that's definitely something I I think of when I think of Patrick Stewart. Not I mean, in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess yeah, it's not in the movie, but I, I think it's it's the casting doesn't bother me like it bothers you, John. I guess I think um, I think he's fine for the role. I feel like they should have got a country singer to play this part because those are the kind of guys that have, like lived a life but also have like a sensitive side. This should have been like Merle Haggard or like Chris Christopherson, you know, Johnny Cash. Could have played Actually, that sounds incredible. That's Oops, my spell. Johnny Cash. It's Gertie. Uh And yeah, and they got right into a shield fight. Guys, don't we love this force field fight? I think you already spoiled this, John. We don't. <laughs> yeah, I guess we don't. It's it, there's so if you haven't seen the movie, but you've read the book, and so you're still listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> it's. They're covered in blocks, and not like mm-hmm. a bunch of tiny blocks, like pixels. I mean, like, like their leg is like one long block. Like they're wearing Minecraft like, armor or something. Yeah, and you can barely see their that they're in there. You can, and also it distorts their voices, so you can't really hear the dialogue as they're fighting either. It just it looks terrible, and <laughs> they talk about shields a lot, and you can tell that. They're like, this effect sucks so bad, we're only going to do it for the one scene. <laughs> that's funny, they, they, they spend the time on it and then never come back to it. Though that's kind of like in the book where you have a fight with it early on, and they're like, whoa, no, don't wear those, because like, if somebody shoots you with a laser gun, a huge explosion will happen. Mm-hmm. Or a worm will come and get you. Yeah. Yeah, so... I don't know, I think the most interesting thing about the shields... Is that you can have the the scene where they're like, oh, you think you're prepared to fight, but you're not prepared for what it's like on Arrakis, where that shit's useless. And they don't do that. Uh, in, in fact, that whole impending sense of doom that permeates the first part of the book is not really there. And instead, it's just replaced with the, a gloominess everywhere, <laughs> even on Caladan, which... Uh, you know, there's the there's a, a, a picture from the 2020 movie where it looks like Caladan is like, like kind of rainy and sad as well. I definitely pictured this as like idyllic, like Naboo basically, yeah. just like the the perfect place to live. Um, so I'm surprised that everyone's ever decided. Well, it's got a lot of water, but it's still like it's shitty to live there. Also, knife fights, right? That's that's it's, there's a lot of knife fights in the book. Most of the hand-to-hand combat is with knives, and that's another one where I'm not sure that that translates well to film. To have a bunch of knife fights, it could work if there's like much more like martial art type stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, if they're just more building up to these fights, and I feel like there's never any build up to anything that happens in this movie. It always just <laughs> happens. 
There's never any this emotional weight behind anything. Oh, you guys remember how also early on Paul fought a robot? Oh, that yeah. That just felt did. like something's like, well, Star Wars did it. I guess we better have him fight a robot, too. Because he's going to be fighting plenty of robots. This this is a weird cause the, So they show off that in Paul's bedroom, they have a stockpile of these voice things. These weirding modules, they call them, right? Uh we you put on a necklace and then you help you have a gun and you can go yeah, and it shoots <laughs> your voice. <sighs> it's just good stuff. I don't know where they come up with came up with that idea. But uh, they also they emphasize that this is like an Atreides invention. Um and it's all in Paul's bedroom. So I don't know how they get more of them later in the movie. It seems like if anyone would have them, it would be the Harkonnens, because they took over. But, like, later in the movie, they have, like, hundreds of them, and nobody else has them. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, we also get to see my man in, like, his one scene, <laughs> Duncan Idaho, played by Richard Jordan from Hunt for Red October. And he's just like, hey, there's those Fremen people. They're, they're something. Watch out for them when, when you're going to Dune. I'll be dead later. Bye. <laughs> incredibly disappointing i mean we don't even see duncan idaho until they're on arrakis and he uh, introduces himself alongside uh some fremen because that's like his thing is he's kind of reaching out to them and learning about them and this he's just some generic white guy who has one scene it's a fucking joke it's almost like they forgot to put him in and at the last second put him <laughs> in it's a cameo basically it might have could have been played by anyone disappointing i don't Unfortunately, that kind of sets a precedent for every other character that's introduced for the rest of the movie. Um, because I would say even Stilgar is sort of treated as just like a guy. Like he, they, they go to almost no trouble to emphasize the relationship there. It's, it's really pathetic how underdeveloped the characters feel in this movie yeah lady jessica one was one that was pretty disappointing francesca annis it's her birthday by the way today recording oh. this on lady <laughs> jessica's birthday the, the 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 actress that played lady jessica she's just more of a damsel uh I, I guess later on they show that she uh is talented in some way because she gets the upper hand on stilgar and is like oh you're great at fighting but that, that's the only taste of that we get. The rest of the time, she's just concerned. Uh, very yeah, disappointing. That sucks. It, it, we're jumping ahead to that part. That sucks because uh, uh, like that whole stretch of the book is emphasizing that Paul's powers are waking up, but he's still not good at using them. And so it's really up to Lady Jessica's knowledge and skills to keep them alive. And she keeps outsmarting everybody to, to keep them going. And then in that scene, she proves that she's a better fighter than anyone else, including the Fremen, because of her knowledge of uh, what what the Fremen call the weirding way. Um, and what they do in the movie is they have her disarm Stilgar, and then she agrees to teach them, and then Paul teaches them. Where it's like, what the fuck? This is her, her whole thing. I was confused about the teaching thing, because she didn't use the the sound necklaces yeah the weirding module to, to, she didn't use those to disarm him did she no she just grabbed him he's like wow you're really good teach us 
<laughs> that's all it was that's like her one seed so I know that the reason it's like that in this is because David Lynch did not want to bother learning anything about filming martial arts uh, <laughs> Nancy how do they handle this in the miniseries it's fucking awesome it's like <laughs> that's, that's it's, like, to- it's like totally uh, totally uh, Dragon Ball Z stuff <laughs> Um, my only pr- <laughs> wow. Well, you know, it, I mean, it's what you think. It's like they like disappear and move really quick, and okay. But my only problem with it in the miniseries is like they train and are like training with it for forever, but in the final battle, they don't really use it. I'm assuming because it's really expensive to do those effects. <laughs> but it does look pretty awesome, and it's like totally like, like she does that at the in that Stilgar scene. She's like. Choo, choo. And everyone's like freaking out. Paul runs away like a little bitch. But okay, but does it actually look cool, or are we talking about like someone running? No, I mean it it looks it it looks fine. It looks good for a made-for-TV miniseries. It looks. That's the thing about the miniseries is like some of the stuff, like kind of like Dune, like the movie. All the interiors look really good. But then there's like this one sh- exterior shot of like Arakeen that looks really bad and they show it like a thousand times. <laughs> but uh but yeah, I mean the some of the, a lot of the effects in the show are hit or miss, but like the worm looks good and it's just kind of pixelated cuz it's old, you know, but it, they do a really good job. I liked it a lot. Wow, I liked it a lot. Better than the movie. But who's the better Duke Leto, William Hurt or your William? William Hurt's pretty good. You know, it's so funny. I was watching this and I was like, you know, I'm trying to think who would have been a better Duke Leto in this '80s version. You know, William, younger William Hurt would have been good (laughs) in this movie. He just played him when he was too old. Paul is, Paul is like super whiny. He's basically like young Luke Skywalker, like the whole movie. Let's kill two birds with one stone here. Let's talk about Jurgen Prochnow briefly, and then let's talk about Kyle McLaughlin. So Jurgen Prochnow, I don't know, guys. I think he's pretty bad in this movie. And I feel bad that my main criticism is his accent is just way too strong. (laughs) I mean, for me, I think it's another case of just the character is not really a presence in the film like he is in the book. I just don't care about him. Performance is bad, too, though. And I feel bad because I want to like Jurgen Prock now. I still haven't seen Das Boot. I will someday. But I feel like I've only seen him in some really bad movies <laughs> thus far in my life. Like, he, I was like, he sounds like Christoph Waltz. This isn't this is not how I imagine Duke Leto sounding. It's just way too thick. He has no presence. He's got a good beard. I'll give him that. Good job with the beard, man. And I like his dog. <laughs> You guys like his dog? He's got a little doggy. Sure. I do. That's a great addition. And especially the, the scene later on where Patrick Stewart is carrying the doggy into battle. <laughs> he yells, Far Duke Leto! While running with a pug. I did think it was weird how like they only used the... Uh, There's like bulldogs in the Emperor's room. And then the Atreides had a bunch of pugs. So I thought it was... Like, in the year 10,000, they only, like, the only breeds left were, like, all the most hideous breeds of dogs. They're the only, they're the ones that are strongest <laughs> enough to survive. That can't breathe. 
<laughs> can't breathe. That's a, well, it's, you know, because everyone's a horrible mutant. <laughs> in, in a world where there, there are people that are so fat they can't walk, they also wanted to only have And remember, dogs. there are also cats in this movie. Oh, I'm excited to get to that. Uh. But my thing about this pug is... It's not that just that there's a pug in this movie. Is that if there's a it's prominently featured. There's a scene where Duke Leto is, is giving a speech before they depart to Dune on the spaceship, and he's holding the pug. It's hard not to just stare right at the dog in his arms because everyone's wearing these elaborate costumes, and he's carrying like this little dog. It's just it's really funny. There's so many things in this movie. They're like, I wonder why he's doing why that is the way it is. Like it doesn't have anything to do with anything. <laughs> Just a creative choice. And I said I'd want to talk about Kyle McLaughlin right now, but I don't know if we should save it. Should we save it? I was just gonna say I think I think he's fine. Yeah, it's he's it's fine. really tough part with the dialogue, but I I think he's a good choice for the part, and I think I think he's okay. I like him. Yeah. It's like the one performance that I'm did okay he, with. Did he feel young enough? I thought he did. I mean, no one ever does for me. I thought I thought he <laughs> seemed really young. I don't know. He's probably not much older than Timothy Chalamet's going to be, right, in the new Dune. Because Timothy Chalamet looks really young, but even he's, like, in his mid-20s. Yeah, I thought, um, I thought he was... So, yeah, it looks like Kamala yeah, Hoffman would have been about 25. He's about 10 years older than the character. But he's got a young face. And how old is Timothy Chalamet? He's 24, so around the same age pretty funny <laughs> but he just seems so much younger he's still playing high schoolers what'd you think about david lynch's cameo <laughs> he gives himself a, a good amount of lines i'm i'm into it i love david lynch's voice so <laughs> we gotta get out of here <laughs> i like how he's basically like it seems like he's he really hasn't read the book and he's just like oh, there's things in the book i don't know <laughs> Just reading from the book as yeah, he does his yeah. lines. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I I don't get that. If he didn't, if he didn't read the book or he didn't care about the original story, then why is it so faithful <laughs> to the book? Why didn't he change it more? Yodorowsky was doing some batshit insane stuff, and he almost got that movie made. Did David Lynch just totally throw in the towel on any creative control? I mean, there's a way of adapting it faithfully and not caring about it that much. Like, I kind of get the sense that he was just got to a point where he's like, I'll just hit all of the beats and I'll try and put in some of my weird stuff also. But I don't know if he really figured out a way to do it that felt, I don't know, organic for for yeah. him as an artist. Why would he be doing that? This is only his, his, what, his third movie? I don't know. I mean, I would say maybe just because he's early on in his career and he's thinking, you know, this is the next step. I did a super low-budget midnight movie with a razor head. I did a slightly bigger movie, like more of a prestige picture with Ele- the Elephant Man. And he's like, well, this is where I go from here. I do a big budget blockbuster but I think by making this movie, David Lynch figures out that that's not his wheelhouse. And so then he makes Blue Velvet after this. Uh, you know, it is his wheelhouse, though, is the scene where we get to see the uh, the navigator 
bend space so that they can travel yeah. through space. Bend time or whatever. So it's like, I think he finds things in Frank Herbert's text that, like, appeal to him, like the Navigator stuff. But, like, there's only so much that he could find, it feels like. Because otherwise there's all this other plot that he has to hit beat by beat to make it, like, actually feel like a Dune movie. How did you guys feel about the scene where the Navigator is... uh bending space so that they can travel it's just like floating in that void i thought that was pretty funny wait pretty till cool. you see the miniseries <laughs> oh do they actually show you how space travel works in that as well not really i mean but they show the navigator and it's it's totally different but it's equally weird <laughs> yeah i would just always i mean yeah. i don't know i guess i always assumed when i read the first book that it was just like some gross quasimodo looking people i didn't realize that they're so alien in the way they are. So I have a question, and this might be different in the book or the movie. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do they – do the are the navigators – are they humans and then, like, they take a bunch of spice and turn into that? Or have they themselves evolved over thousands of years to look like that through – If I remember, they were people, but they've taken so much that it's uh... – So they were – like, when they were born, they were regular. Yeah, they're like Gollum. Oh. It's, it's like, how did they get so mutated? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they must be like the day they're born, just like shoving in spice left and right. Oh, I thought you were going to say the day they're born, they're just so ugly. It's like, I guess you might as well be a guild navigator. <laughs> <laughs> You're already there anyways. It's no other life for you. Uh, so yeah, the navigator bends space. They go to Arrakis, Dune the Desert Planet. We finally get to Dune, guys. And we don't see we don't, we don't it see looks much the same. Yeah, it looks the same. It's we, it's mostly interiors. <laughs> this blows my mind. Dark you know, you interiors. always hear about in in good movies that really use their environment. Like a, a good movie in New York is like, oh, New York's like a character in this movie. Dune, Arrakis should be a character in this movie. It is nothing. It is cutaways to some some sand. Yeah. There's like no exterior shots of it, and it's like they filmed it in Mexico. Like there's plenty of deserts around. What the fuck? I feel like they spend too much time on Kaladin. So yeah. by the time you get to Dune, you're just not that interested in and it. And there's not just there's no contrast. <laughs> they could have changed the lighting. At least at least in like um in Jodorowsky's Dune, he was going to be like, "Oh, yeah, every planet has its own band that does the soundtrack." <laughs> so like once they get into Dune, it's going to be like fucking Pink Floyd or some bullshit. <laughs> and then some other band's going to be at one on this planet. It's like, "Yeah, that's something." This is just, it all feels like the same place. It all feels like gothic nightmare. And, and it totally should be about Paul falling in love with this planet. Um, uh, like the book emphasizes that his whole life up until he got to Arrakis, he was, you know, everything, like all the food he ate had to be tested for poison. You know, he, did, he never had to want for anything, but he also didn't really want anything. Um, and, and Arrakis gives him a chance to to get in touch with a different side of himself and uh liberates him from a lot of the oppression that he was feeling from his particular place of privilege and there's none of that he knows there's no time in the script to do that stuff it's got to keep moving (laughs) it's funny because i get the not to keep bringing up the miniseries but i i kind of forgot all that part of the book because in the miniseries he's like 
just like, this place fucking sucks. <laughs> He's just like complaining about it the whole time until he joins the Fremen. <laughs> but he's like, like they have the scene where the, at like the dinner party scene in the miniseries. They have that. Like there's a oh, lot okay. more room in the miniseries. <laughs> but sure. like during that dinner, <laughs> some guy is like making fun of the Fremen or whatever. And Paul, who's like kind of likes the Fremen at this point, he's just like stands up. He's like, yeah, this place might fucking suck, but you know, what, whatever. You don't have to be so mean. And he's just, he's just <laughs> whining the whole time. But yeah, that's something that that's weird that they don't do is how in the book, it's like Dune seems like this place where life cannot, like it cannot go on. This is where things, dreams go to die. But yeah, it doesn't feel any worse or better than the planet he was on before this, or any of the other planets we see. They're all the same. It seems preferable to the to uh, Gidi Prime, the Harkonnen homeworld, which is just a bummer. Oh yeah, let's talk about this. Oh, before that, I wanted to mention one more thing that I liked that we, we skipped over. I thought the pain box, they did fine. Liked that. Yeah, they just did the scene. They just did it. it. Nice. So it was good enjoyed it okay let's go to giddy prime which is weird because if i recall in the book we first meet the harkonnens while they're still on arrakis they're just in another city on arrakis uh but here they're on their weird hr gear nightmare world <laughs> giddy prime uh I, I i have to say guys this this introduction to the baron uh as much as this may be a departure from the character from anything in the book I love this sequence. It feels like it's where David Lynch feels most comfortable in the entire film is where the Baron is talking about what they're going to do to Duke Leto as some doctor like picks at gross scabs on his face, which of course is only in this movie. That's yeah, not why are there the so books. many I guess David boils Lynch is and like... sores? And... <laughs> I kind of like it. It's like I they it. it's like they couldn't make him fat enough to be like <laughs> gross fat so they had to More make him gross. <laughs> gross in a way that his skin was gross i guess oh and the baron in the miniseries is so fat it's awesome <laughs> i like that they finally just got an actor who was He's fat perfect. enough to do it like He's that didn't perfect. need prosthetics ian mcneese and he re- he wears some he wears some revealing clothes in that yeah it's <laughs> weird, really but gross and awesome trying to remember the doctor's lines they're super funny he's just like oh my baron your diseases love to me and i'm like yeah this is david lynch now we're in the zone it definitely feels like a precursor to uh frank booth in a blue velvet in a way like that's kind of what i was thinking of when i watched the baron this scene doesn't really establish much plot-wise, though, aside from introducing the Baron as a character, because we already know what the plan is from earlier with the Emperor. This is basically just a chance to show off this gross guy hanging out with his <laughs> nephews, one of which is played by Sting, and I really like that Sting is in this movie. He, again, doesn't do much, but I think his look is great. This is definitely how I imagine Fade, Fade Rotha, the Baron's nephew. Love it. There's a lot of this nice details in this Pretty scene. naked. I love when the the beast Robin like crushes a weird bug and then like drinks it like in a little juice box. Yeah, 
And then this fucking weird thing happens where they bring in, um, I guess one of the Baron's slaves or, or, or someone that he feels the need to kill by pulling out his heart valve, which is, I don't know where they come up with that, but it's, it's in here. And, uh, and he starts floating around and this is just fucking weird, but I don't know. It all kind of works for me in this one scene. I like the flying thing too. How do you guys like uh, the character and the performance? Of Why does he have to laugh so much? Hate. So <laughs> gross. I can't even look at him. Why does he have to dump oil all over himself in that one scene? What the fuck is that? I don't that? know what that is all about. First I was like, is that a blood shower? What is that? What is it? Oil? What is that? <laughs> you know, you know. I just, I just thought about something. We see like no fucking spice in this movie. <laughs> What the fuck, dude? That's like what this is about. It's about controlling the spice, not using it. Mm. I hate it. Uh, but yeah, the performance is... I think it's funny. It's kind of fun, but it's like not right for the character at all. Oh, yeah. I, I appreciate you... that they gave this guy, Kenneth McMillan. This is clearly... This is definitely the biggest role he ever had in a movie. He was just some <laughs> character actor. He's having a lot of fun with it. It's goofy. It's fun. But the Baron has so much more potential as a character... That I think that's what makes it so disappointing. Is the Baron should be this evil, conniving mastermind, not this giddy, flying fat man. <laughs> I like uh, I like some things about him. I was always excited when he showed up, honestly, because this movie doesn't have a lot of uh, levity, uh, so <laughs> in ways than one. Um, so it was like the only humor that I was getting out of the movie, aside from unintentional humor. <laughs> so, I don't know. Mixed feelings. Uh, I, it's bad. I know it's bad, but I kind of like it. Uh, okay. And yeah, and they get to back to the uh, Altrades clan. They get to Dune, and they meet uh, Kynes like right away. They've been there for like five minutes. Like, here's the planetologist. And that took like that took us like five weeks in our reading to get to. <laughs> so they're hauling ass. We immediately meet Max von Sydow as Kynes. Like the casting, like the character. He's barely in the movie though. Yep. Uh, you know, I wanted to point something out here. Um, the still suits in this movie, I I really like the design. But I was watching this um, with my brother, and he's seen it. A, he's seen it before, uh, and he's like, you know. I like the still suits, but shouldn't they not be black? Because wouldn't that absorb heat way worse? I'm like, yeah, wouldn't that? That's not a, like a good... You wouldn't want to make those black. Maybe they make them sweat more so they can drink more. <laughs> they can make them drink more. <laughs> yeah, man. Gotta drink that piss. Um, but yeah, anytime I see something I like, I gotta point out. I like the still suits. They look like Borg, co- Borg costumes. <laughs> but before... So yeah, um, that David Lynch cameo is the communicator. <laughs> Sandworm attack. It's fun. I just realized we're like barely through the movie. There's just so much that happens. Uh, sandworms look fine, I guess. Right? They look fine. Yeah, oh, they look sweet. Pretty good. I think that's yeah one of the best looking things in the movie. These puppets. I mean, a lot of the yeah the more practical effects look fine like 
the, the navigator and this and uh, a lot of the buildings look cool maybe they don't all make sense um, in this movie but uh, yeah they're fun uh, and then yeah they do this and they get back and then fuck the planet's under attack already that's just, just zooming by <laughs> we get the hilarious long live Duke Leto while holding a pug seed alright and I just did some googling yeah it sounds like Bedouins wear black robes because uh, a thick layer of dark colored clothing will absorb the heat and not transmit it to the skin. So maybe that's the same thinking with the still suits. But it's these are like a... scuba suits, though. They're like so tight. But they're, th- I, I guess they're thick. <laughs> they don't seem, they seem like skin tight, but I don't know. It's it's hey, like man. it's a sci-fi costume. I can't be too hard on it. <laughs> um, yeah, we find out UA betrays them. They'll like, who cares? We barely even know his name or yeah. anything that he did. He doesn't even he doesn't really explain even... why he did it. Nope. He just dies. He just dies. Um... We should talk about the voiceover. Okay. So another late addition to this movie was voiceover. Um, and f- for some reason, the stylistic choice they made was to have um, the, the voiceover as thoughts and have the actors doing their voiceover read them as whispers, <laughs> which is kind of creepy. Like, it's kind of cool, but it's it's weird. And... Everybody gets to think and have thoughts that are heard. It's not sparingly used. It's heavily used, <laughs> uh, especially early on in the film. I'm all about it. <laughs> it's. I, I, can you guys think of any other movie that does this? Oh, there's got to be some. Yeah. I'm... The question is: Are are there? I was going to say, the question is, are there movies where multiple characters do this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, lots of movies have like the the classic like one shot of a character making a quizzical face and then you hear their voice in a voiceover with like an echo. Uh, But I can't think of a movie that has like all the thoughts of all the characters. I think I like it so much just because it is such a big part of the book and that, I don't know, it's just... Yeah, but lots of books are told from multiple people's points of view. I feel like this book in particular though, like... most and it could just be my limited selection of novels i've read but i feel like most novels i've read they only switch point of view at breaks you know in the chapter or at the chapter dune will like fucking switch just anytime it wants to you know oh yeah yeah that's true it will yeah so i feel like i don't know i just i guess at this point in the movie i'm just like expecting whatever (laughs) i don't mind the inner voices but i do find them distracting because every time one happens i just imagine like so these guys are just looking at each other and no one's saying anything he's just like kind of staring off (laughs) i find that funny makes me think about those garfield strips where they take out the word balloons i it's i can't get over that they do it for all the characters like like you said, we you meet Kynes almost immediately when they get to Arrakis, and you're hearing Kynes' thoughts, and it's like you don't need to hear his thoughts because the most important thing you think is like I actually kind of like this Duke, and like you you get that just from the context of the scene. <laughs> you don't need him to say that. 
it it just I I don't understand. The only like I said, the only definite, the only reason I can think of why you would do this is it's a stylish thing, and it's. No, it I weirds think, me out. I think it's probably way more likely it's a studio thing where the studio's like, we need to make this make more sense. Make it make more sense. <laughs> Have him say what he's thinking. That'll make people understand what's going on. That feels like studio interf- That does not feel like a creative choice to me. I mean, maybe it is. But this movie definitely went through a lot of rounds in the editing room. And I'm sure the studio had some notes. That feels like a studio now. I'm sure that information is out there somewhere. Is there a cut without the narration? Is that the true cut? The true cut. Well, uh, I know that there is a extended cut because it was shown as a as a TV movie at some point. Um, but it is not a, a director's cut. No, David Lynch did not put his name on that. He had nothing to do with that cut. Uh I think mostly because it sounds like since this movie came out, he's like tried to have nothing to do with it <laughs> whatsoever. He doesn't even want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, some pretty dramatic stuff from the book uh, is not dramatic in the movie, like the death of Duke Leto. It's pretty brief. Um, just spits at Brad Dorif real quick. I actually do really like that Brad Dorif is a uh, fighter <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, I feel like it's good casting. Plus the fact that he went on to play Worm Tongue in Lord of the Rings. It's like that's yeah. just that just is kind of character, man. Good work, Brad. I, and I do like um, when that uh, scene happens. How the Baron floats away and he goes, "I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive!" <laughs> like, like what was what, he's he's pretty happy about. It. That's just weird. <laughs> it's a weird scene. <laughs> Yeah, and that's another example. Like in the book, he's he's thinking about, oh, this will look bad because he, he's killed the duke, uh, and he, and he used poison, so that's not going to look good either. All the, like he's thinking about the optics politically about what's happened, and strategically thinking about what he'll do uh, with his forces now that his mentat has died, and like all these options are running through his head, and instead we just get, I'm alive, I'm alive. <sighs> Go pour some oil on his face. Yeah, he's like about to do like the risky business dance or something, <laughs> but floating. <laughs> Actually, that sounds really good. I want to see that. Ugh. Yeah, and then there's like a two-year time skip because that's what people needed. If there's anything to like alter from the book, uh, I feel like they should have like changed. I don't know. It it doesn't even register to me as a two-year time skip in this movie. But yeah, I guess well. It, uh, and they they really I mean you're you're skipping over it too so the like the part where Jessica and Paul are surviving in the desert oh, yeah. which is like a, a full third of the book <laughs> uh, it's like five minutes I, I think the the weirdest part of this section of the movie is like we have to walk without rhythm and they don't explain what that means uh, we know from the book but also like they don't show what that means either because they just are just walking. Like, why'd you include the line if you're not going to make an effort to depict what he said? Mm. I don't know, man. It's weird. I do like when they meet the Fremen, though, and Jessica pulls her quick move, and then the Fremen are just like, all right, cool. Oh, this guy, yeah, you're the guy we're supposed to look after, right? Okay, you're on our team. Your name is Usul. Okay, you're going to lead us. Let's, we're good. <laughs> Where's Jamis? <laughs> 
It's yeah. It's like they like knew he was someone special, but like they didn't trust him right away. He had to earn their respect for sure. But in this, is just like okay, yeah, you're with us. Cool. Now you're a leader. Like they have that one scene, and then they have the stupid montage where they're talking. About it's been two years, and they're just running all across the desert, <laughs> fucking shit up. He yeah. just like immediately becomes their leader. That's a problem with the movie is that it doesn't feel like it has a second act. Like there is no arc where Paul like accepts his fate or like grows into this leadership role. He just he just goes for it. And it's all good. <laughs> it works out great. Yeah. Yeah. It's working out fine. So him and Lady Jessica join the Fremen. Thuffer, of course, is kidnapped by the Harkonnens. And guys, they poison him. And how's he supposed to get the antidote? <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember how it works? I did. I just remember it being the same as the book, except there's a cat. <laughs> he has to like get the antidote by milking a bald cat every day. Which does it also have like a rat strapped to it? Yeah, but that's not addressed. <laughs> that's just an aesthetic thing. <laughs> What the fuck? Where did this come from? <laughs> Milk this cat. Or you will die. Complete this fear not... factor challenge every day or you will die. You think after that first week, it's probably not a big deal, right? Yeah, you get pretty used to it. Milk, Milk on the cat. You know, it's just like having your morning cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, this is another thing that's like a huge... It's a huge deal in the book because they need a Mentat. They have a Mentat captured. They use the poison, and they they suspect Thufir wants to betray them. And Thufir does want to betray them, but how he's going to go about it is uh, obscured to everybody. And everyone has their own motivations. And it's a complicated situation. And here, I, I feel like Thufir doesn't even have another line for the rest of the movie. He's just like disoriented <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> then he yanks now. his heart valve out at the end. Um, also going back to the Fremen did they really I remember in the book them like ravaging like going all around Arrakis like waging war I thought they were keeping a low profile uh well no they've been, they've been taking out the the Sardaukar so but, like people didn't even in the book people didn't even know that there was life in the south desert well the I think that's because they like leaving no survivors, so they don't know okay. how many there are. Okay, but, so they were but they killing were, people. Okay, because they remember the reason that they uh, meet up with Gurney again is because they were taking out scavengers for getting into their territory. Ah, yes, the smugglers. And uh, Paul meets up with Gurney again here in the same way, and Gurney now has the coolest hairstyle, where he's bald on top but has a mullet. <laughs> what an interesting and like look. stubble. In the stubble. I've never seen that look. I mean, I must have, but it's a very unique look to have a mullet, but with nothing on top. What's how's a mullet goes? Like business on, like on top, party in the back. What would you call this? Like it's like party in the back. Old age in the back. <laughs> Retirement home on the top. Retirement home on the top. Party in the back. <laughs> All right. Uh, but yeah, they just kind of run into each other. It's like, whatever, yeah. Nothing's ever built up. They don't build up the water of life. Aaliyah oh, just kind of shows up. <laughs> yep. Nancy, I, I want to know, how did they handle Aaliyah in the miniseries? 
she doesn't have an adult voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a child actor. Um, it, it's pretty funny. It's like kind of the same. She's like four. She's like five or six. You know, she's not two, which is disappointing. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to do this. I don't know how anyone can ever do this. I mean, it, it makes... Like, in the miniseries, it's it's still, like, funny that or, or weird that she's so young and, like, calling that guy the Fat Baron. And But I really wish it was, like, Baby Genius. <laughs> That's the only way I'll be truly... You know, we say that, but, like, it's not like it worked that well in Baby Geniuses either. <laughs> Yeah, but it's 2020 now. Ah, uh, you're right. If they made Baby Jesus now, they'd totally have that shit down. But yeah, the the 84 Aaliyah is quite... With the adult woman voice speaking as a child. It's, it's like uh, Bam Bam in the Flintstones movie, also with Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> <laughs> There's a double feature. Uh, I don't even fucking care what happens yeah. at this point. I don't know. Yeah. Paul learns to ride the worm, which is kind of funny. But it's like it shouldn't be funny though. But it's funny. Yeah, it should be a huge trap or 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 a sad moment too because it shows him uh, becoming the 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 emperor and less the friend. Yeah. But, true. Instead, it's just, he's got that guitar, man. That's the fucking rocks. And then he's like, he's doing that move where he's like wrapping the, the rope around his arm. He's like, hell yeah, I got this yeah. worm. Hell yeah, dude. Also, he's fallen in love with Chani, played by Sean Young. Sean Young. Doesn't do anything. Also but, in Blade Runner. Yeah, what a, what a couple of years, man, for, for her in sci-fi. Uh, let's just get to like the emperor. He's like, uh, you're like, what the fuck's going on, Baron? Oh wait, wait. Well, I I know I noticed one thing. I noticed okay. one thing in the scene where Paul is training the Fremen in their Nazi base uh, how to use the weirding module. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I can't believe he skipped over this. Which I actually I do like this scene. I think it's kind of fun where he has the one guy like try to break the rock with his voice and goes like break. It doesn't break. Like, I guess if you're buying into this voice as a weapon thing, it's cool. But I noticed in that scene, you see two little kids at the front, even though everyone else he's training is like a full-grown adult man. And I think that is a reference to him having killed Jamas and ended up with two adopted sons uh, in the book. So I wonder if that's all, like, deleted scenes from this movie. Is like, if he had dual Jamas and... That ended up with his new family and is, and is taking his kids around the siege and is doing all this stuff. Um, and the only remnant of it is you see these two little kids in that scene. Just looking through my notes trying to remember what the name of those uh, those kids were in my extensive dude notes. <laughs> Nancy, did you watch any extended shit? Were you talking about that? Uh- I was gonna, but after the miniseries, I was pretty tuned out. Pretty tuned out. Are you gonna watch Children of Dune? Uh, once I finish the book. Oh yeah, is that is that two books worth of? Yeah, it's the content? second and third. It's the same. Uh, same Paul is in it, so I think it's somewhat connected. 
Okay. Yeah, Jameis is in the miniseries, but the, they don't talk about like his wife or kids or anything. They just he just kills him. And those kids' names are oh, I just had them. I think they're like it's Kalef and Orlop. So if you guys ever get that question in in pub trivia, who are Jubies from Dudes and Children? That's, that's way too specific for pub <laughs> trivia. Maybe Dune pub trivia. Orlop, Orlop. Can I open and up Kalef. a Dune? Kalef and Orlop. I see an Orlop on the cast on IMDb. So yes, confirmed. Hell yeah, man. Though I didn't see any Esmar Tuick. Maybe he was in there. I don't fucking know. He probably had a ca- his cameo in the background. It's this kind of movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Emperor's like freaking out. Leah shows up and scares the Baron because he's like, what? And I don't remember if she stabs him because I remember he just like goes flying. Yeah, her, st- her stabbing him is what caused him okay, to go flying. So she stabs him and... Instead of him just being stabbed and then being dead, like in the book, he starts like kind of floating, like he's lost control of his uh, his suspensors, and he's just flying, crashes out the window into the mouth of a sandworm. I'm not gonna lie, guys, it's hilarious. I love it. It's pretty fun. There's a part of me watching the last part of this movie where I was just like, what if this was just all really campy and stupid? (laughs) Like, I would kind of enjoy that movie. Like, there's also the part where there's the the Reverend Mother's like telling Aaliyah, she's like, get out of my mind. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, yeah. I think that's why I kind of enjoy the Baroness movie. It's a terrible, like, version of the character, but it's just funny. Yeah. I like that. It's goofy. A lot of goofs. It's weird because I don't remember Paul even having a final interaction with the Emperor. You know, in the book, there's that very tense standoff where they all kind of have to come to terms with what's going to happen from here on out. But in my memory, it's like... The Baron gets stabbed, he's flying out the window, gets eaten by a sandworm, and Paul's just riding a sandworm majestically for like the last ten minutes. They're all blasted. They're all going, yeah, what the And the movie ends, and then we get some weird end credit sequence where it shows each character, uh, and it's got like Toto music playing. It does have... Okay, well, you can't skip the ending, John, because the ending is a massive departure. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it's, oh, there's, there's the... Fade comes back, and they have the knife fight, and that's in the book, too. That's fine. Um, and it's it's just <laughs> fine in the book, also. Yeah, it's just like, okay. It's not the most epic knife fight. We, we've had a few knife fights already. We know, the, we know about tricks. Yeah. I feel like I understood his like hidden blade more seeing it in the movie mm-hmm. than I did than I understood in the book. He's got like a, a a knife that comes out of his ribs. Uh but oh and then he, he I like that after he uh stabs him in the head he yells at him too and he like his corpse like moves around a little bit and like the ground breaks. That's nice. I do so appreciate, we're just all in I do appreciate that Faye died in the same way he died in the book the knife going through the head yeah so it's the only way i totally I forgot think. about that scene i was like i don't remember ever getting off the sandworm i guess that's how it ended um but then inexplicably uh 
he's declared the quits at Hadarak finally, and the environment of Arrakis changes. Uh, a real rain finally comes and washes away all the all the badness, I guess, on this whole planet, and 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 brings brings life and and terraforms, I guess, instantly the planet because he's God. And what the f- yeah, because he's God now. Like, what the fuck is this shit? It's disappointing. And, and Yodorowsky wanted to do the same thing, right? Yes, he did. It's going to end the same way with um, a forest just springing out of nothing. But he took it a step. It doesn't... Oh, yeah, and then the planet, like, flies away. <laughs> <laughs> to where? It's in space. <laughs> I don't know. The planet just starts moving and it soars away. <laughs> oh my god I was telling uh, Sean and Colin Nancy about some of the crazy scenes that Jodorowsky had come up with for his version of Dune there's like a scene where he makes Duke Leto a eunuch so the only way he can have a child is a dro- he takes a drop of his blood and then Lady Jessica turns it into semen and then we ha- watch the semen like travel through her body to create Paul <laughs> inside of her. Like this is a whole sequence in the movie. It's all storyboarded out and everything. The book is weird enough. <laughs> no, I think we need to see Paul's conception. <laughs> <laughs> and Robot Emperor, you know, all the good stuff. Yeah. I think that movie would have been really, really fun to see. Uh, I don't know. Not if it's fourteen hours. It's so funny because now, obviously, that would have gotten greenlit, and they'd be like, "Okay, sweet, so we'll put that out as a trilogy, no big deal." But I guess in the in the mid seventies, that was early enough that they're like, "No, movies have to be about two hours, and that's it. That's all a movie can be is one two hour thing." Fuck you. Yeah, I think that's the thing about Dune. It was it was ahead of its time when it was written and. Uh, it was ahead of its time as a concept for a movie in the 70s, maybe even in the 80s. Only now does it feel like you can really do Dune justice as a film um, with where we're at with blockbusters and media. Because, um, yeah, they didn't quite nail it with this one. I will say I love the production design in this movie. Uh, a lot of the props and ships and stuff are cool. Uh, there's parts that I liked, even though I was bored for big segments as well. It wasn't the worst yeah, it, thing in the world. I I would say I like it too, except for how uh, hazy and muddled all of Arrakis looks. I don't get why it can't be like harsh but beautiful. Like I don't know why why does it have to look like even the S stuff outside is on a soundstage? <laughs> I don't know. Oh man. Um, but you know it's disappointing because. I always figured that... I mean, I knew this movie was weird going in. But I always figured people mostly didn't like it because they just didn't understand it because they hadn't read the book. So I thought, oh, well, I've read the book, so I'll definitely appreciate it on a different level. Though I feel like my experience probably wasn't that different from people that had read the book. In fact, it was probably a worse experience because I've read the book because I know what potential it does have. So that's yeah, disappointing. I, I Even like, reading the book, I felt just as confused. But I feel like you'd be way more confused if you hadn't read the book. <laughs> yeah. like, that's probably oh, yeah. true. That's like, I had true. to pause. Like, the first half an hour, I had to pause, like, a thousand times to tell Nick. That's so funny. Like, I watched, I couldn't watch this movie in one sitting. I, t- I watched it for an hour, turned it off, and then came back like, two hours later and watched the rest. 
it was not a pleasant experience. You know, probably the worst thing I can say about this movie is, had I watched this movie, and uh, had I not known anything about Dune before seeing this movie, I would have zero interest in reading the book. And that's a damn yeah. shame, because it's a good book. Yeah. It's a great book. So that's pretty bad when a bad movie's like, eh, I don't, I don't want to check out the book. No, fuck this. <laughs> so, that's disappointing. But we did it. And you have you watched all? Do you watch all the miniseries, Nancy? Yep. So you're so you're ready, man. Sucking in all that that team content. I guess I'll probably check that out closer to when the new movie comes out. I'm sure because I'm feeling a little burnout in Dune right now. But I think once like the advertising really kicks in later this year, hopefully I'll get it'll kind of reignite my interest, and then maybe I'll watch the uh, the miniseries. Because I think even if it looks cheap and silly, like you need like a lot of scenes of people like just sitting down and talking, and I feel like the miniseries probably handles that a lot better uh, than this movie. So yeah, looking forward to that. I don't even have any closing thoughts. No, you want to hear some goofs? Yeah. Uh, in that opening scene when the guild navigator visits the emperor uh, as the black container enters through the two gold doors one of the assistant navigators trips and falls <laughs> I do I do remember that and uh, later on in the uh, morgue scene on Arakeen the establishing shot shows two hard-coned corpses one in the foreground and one in the background the body in the background adjusts his head to find a more comfortable position. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Hold on. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. sorry. Is that... So it's a, now for the real segment that everybody wants. Okay, to I totally forgot we were doing an episode of The Pick. Uh, so, Nancy, <laughs> you don't know about this. So, uh, The Pick, we've been doing this segment off and on that I do called John's Rogues Gallery. Where uh, I go to this weird, like, fan-made site called Villains Wiki, where they have, like, all the villains from, like, movie and, and TV, and they have, like, their stats broken down. And they're usually pretty ridiculous and poorly written. Uh, so I'm going to do that right now. There's actually f- multiple for this one. There's one for the Emperor. There's one for Fade. I haven't looked at any of these, so I don't know how good or bad they are. But I'm going to do the one for uh, the Baron. Oh, wow, I can even click novel, film, or miniseries. Click film. God, he looks so fucking gross. I think the the stats break down the same. Okay. The Baron. Full name, Vladimir Harkonnen. Alias, Baron Harkonnen, the Old Baron. Origin, Dune. Occupation, Baron of House Harkonnen, ruler of Giddy Prime, governor in absentia of Arrakis. Power, skills, brilliant intellect, not in this movie. <laughs> Gift for political manipulation. Not in this movie. <laughs> Manipulative charm. I don't think he's hitting on any of these in this movie. <laughs> and, <laughs> and vast resources. Yeah, yeah, they got money. Yeah, they got that cat milker thing. This looks like this, most of the stats are the book character. I don't think they added much from the movie version because there's not much. Because in Powers and Skills, they didn't even put flight. So. <laughs> Hobbies. 
keep in mind, these are his hobbies. Uh, plotting schemes for galactic domination. Having yeah. sex with his younger servants. Ugh, unfortunately, uh-huh. yes. Devising tortures. Definitely. Like milk and a cat. <laughs> Grooming Fade for future leadership. Don't really uh-huh. do that in this movie. Eating large amounts of food. Hell yeah, <laughs> yeah. man. Fuck yeah. Experiencing the world through Elias' senses. Uh, as his hobby? <laughs> it's a hobby. It's listed as a hobby. That's just what he likes to do in his spare time. What is it? What the fuck is that? Okay. Goals. Defeat Duke Leto and House Atreides. Succeeded. Take over Arrakis. Ensure House Harkonnen's continued political ascension. Stay alive. All those ones I listed were all grouped together, and it says all fail. <laughs> Take over Aaliyah's mind. Temporarily succeed. <laughs> Crimes. Abuse of power. Mass murder. Rape. Slavery and torture. Yep. And this is the part that I always... Uh, this is like a game for everyone. It's impossible, except actually Sean won it last time for the first time ever. It's You have to guess the type of villain. Like, you know, example, if Ted Bundy was here, it'd be type of villain, serial killer. Or it could be like evil genius, evil businessman. But they're very specific and usually impossible. Um, do you guys want to take a guess at what type of villain the Baron is? I feel like I've already played this one before, but I'm going to go with the evil mastermind. Okay. Anyone else want to throw in a guess? Uh, it's just really hard not to use Mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like one of the options? Yeah. I'm very curious. What is it? It's you guys want me. You guys want to know? T- Chunky schemer. Yeah, gluttonous psychopath. <laughs> Hegemonic tyrant. Ooh. Hegemonic meaning ruling or dominant in a political or social context. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the fuck, oh, dude? Who's in? I've never even... Oh, my God. Still, that is one of the more detailed villains wikis I've seen. Yeah, it seemed like a lot of that was from the book. Yeah, I we, we should have done our version from the movie. Not even just the first book. Like, what are like? Yeah, there's not much in the movie. He's like, he can fly. He laughs a lot. He's got gross fucking boils on his face. He's got a Paul Revere coat. There I think go. one of his I hobbies would be sludge. Sludge <laughs> pouring the sludge shower on himself <laughs> and removing heart plugs. <laughs> And having his boils picked at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's way funnier when we do ones for like we did one for like the bad guy from uh, Phone Booth. When <laughs> <laughs> we did the Nutty Professor, this is a legit villain. We Buddy can... Love, yeah. I still remember the name. Oh yeah, man, he's an evil doer. <laughs> All right, and then I guess we're going back to our regular format uh, next episode. And it's my pick, isn't it? It's John's pick. John's pick. 
Okay, so I was originally going to pick a movie that um, was, I, I feel like, similar to this in a lot of ways. But I looked at the streaming options, and they fucking suck. And I don't want to make people, like, have to... Like, you can only rent it at the Microsoft store. I'm like, okay, never, this isn't going to work. So I'm going to keep that one on the back burner. There's literally only game. one place on the internet to rent it, and it's the Microsoft store? Everywhere else, you had to buy it for at least $8. Strange. The thing is, you have to know someone whose dad works at Microsoft, so you can get a good deal. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go with a movie that's easy to watch. Actually, let me check that it's still on streaming, because uh, I don't want people to have to spend money on this. I feel like that's not a good omen, is it me saying that? <laughs> All right. Is it Lost in Space? I'm like, what if it was Lost in Space, you guys? That would <laughs> fucking suck. Never seen Lost it. in Space is so William bad. William Hurt. Is, so yeah, we're just talking about William Hurt's sci-fi uh, catalog, and we'll watch Altered States. Uh, no, I'm going to go with a, a dumb comedy that's super short. Uh, but I am very interested. It's on Netflix and Amazon Prime in Crackle. It's Hot Rod with Andy Samberg. <laughs> oh, nice. I've been thinking about watching that. They feel like people say, like, it's actually kind of good. And you're like, really? Because no one cared when that came out. So we'll see. Maybe it is good. I'm, I've been... Uh, that and McGruber have been two very close picks for Ooh. me while I've been doing this how, podcast. How good would that be if we watched those all in, to leading up to that... Staten Island Pete Davidson. He's <laughs> watching SNL <laughs> alumni movies. Not trying to start another theme. Just saying. Well, I look forward to doing that. And I also uh, appreciate uh, Matt for coming in and being on this podcast. Uh, thanks for that, buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, in particular, but also anyone who listened to this, uh, wants to hear more episodes of The Pick... They can go and search for Mildly Pleased on iTunes or whatever else you like podcasts on. And Mildly Pleased, what's that? Well, it's, it's the name of our website. It's mildlypleased.com where you can go and read Colin's blog. <laughs> it's real nice. Um, I guess that concludes our discussion of Dune. Um, but we'll, as, as John said, we'll be back very soon with a discussion of Hot Rod because the pick must flow. Yeah.